Street Photography Podcast, episode number 77, Street Portraits with a Purpose, with Ashley Tillery. Hello and welcome back to the Street Photography Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Bob Patterson, publisher of Street Photography Magazine. I know it's been a while between shows, and that's because I got caught up in my own photo project that just stole my attention. But it was worth it. I've been spending so much time lately looking at other people's work that I've been putting mine on the back burner. We only have so much time, right? Well, we're getting back to it, and our guest this week is Ashley Tillery. She's a street photographer in Arlington, Virginia, which is right outside Washington, D.C. Raised in a military family, Ashley moved around a lot as a kid, which exposed her to many different cultures and places. But it wasn't until after college, while working as a folklorist in rural Alabama, that she found the inspiration to begin photographing communities of color. And she's been doing it ever since. Fast forward to today, armed with only an iPhone, she continues to follow her passion, documenting the people she meets in the D.C. metro area. Currently, she shoots in the Gallery Place Chinatown area of downtown D.C., and here she focuses on making compelling and personal street portraits of perfect strangers. Now, don't get me wrong, Ashley does more than make portraits— She also captures candid moments on the street, all within her mission to document the lives of people of color. Ashley is smart. She's friendly and funny, which enables her to connect with her subjects in a very personal way. She gets close, not just physically, but emotionally, which is evident in her work. It's also obvious that she gains the trust of her subjects who respond in kind. The result is a visual narrative of a community most of us only see from a distance. After you listen to my conversation with Ashley, please be sure to spend some quality time with her work. You'll be glad you did. And today I'm with Ashley Tillery. Ashley lives in the Washington, D.C. area. She's a fellow Virginian up in, uh, up in Arlington. And she has a really varied background. Right now, she's working as a uh, safety and health officer for construction projects, uh, mainly up in uh, up in the Washington D.C. area. But beyond that, she's a fabulous photographer, street photographer. She's a member of the uh, the D.C. Street Photography Collective, which is how I ran into her several months ago. So welcome, Ashley. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. I've uh, actually I've been wanting to invite you for a few months. We were I was on a um, a Zoom call with the Street Photography Collective. You guys were on with the uh, Focus on the Story mm-hmm. folks who were doing a, a photo slam, which was a lot of fun. Those are fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, w- I was really impressed with everybody, and uh, so I'm glad we finally did it. So, Ashley, um, before we get into things, I wonder if you could just give us a little bit about your background, uh, how you got into photography, and street photography in particular. Share your journey with us. Um. Okay. 
So I attended Tuskegee University, which is in Tuskegee, Alabama. And Tuskegee, Alabama is a really strong, it's a really small town. And uh, when I first moved down there, there was almost a cultural shock. Um, Because one, I had never been around so many Black people, having grown up in the military. And two, I had never been immersed in a rural environment. So I was fascinated by what I was seeing. And um, this was way back in the day, like the early 2000s. So I started uh, just riding my bike around with a little disposable camera and capturing images of people, but more so capturing their stories. And the images became incidental to that. Fast forward several years, I find myself in Florida And there's a community there that they refer to as the Bottoms, um, which was the Black community of Crestview, Florida. Um, And once again, I found myself fascinated because even though the Bottoms was a part of Crestview, it was really a world unto itself. Um, And I started shooting a men's social club there and then started shooting more of what I observed, everything from people shelling peas to doing cornrows on porches. And that stuck with me. When ultimately I did wind up in D.C., um, that sense of fascination and that need to commune with community was still with me from my experiences in Alabama and Florida. So when I wanted to explore the city, you know, I would just get on the metro and start doing what was familiar, which was um, shooting communities of color and uh, collecting collecting those stories for my personal edification. And that's how I came to do street photography in particular in uh, the D.C. area. So did you even think of it as street photography when you first started? Um, no, actually. And the term street photography... I, I'm embarrassed to admit I had never heard of it because my my formal background isn't in photography um, until someone told me I was a street photographer, and I was like, ah, okay, I guess that I guess that makes sense. But I didn't think about it as uh, street photography at all. I just thought about it as getting to know the city and getting to know the people who live in the city. So you've been anointed. <laughs> as a batter in a way of speaking yeah yeah when somebody is like uh you are a street photographer now rise so wait a minute no i'm not it's <laughs> right? now official it's now official sometimes it's interesting though because i think i lean more towards portraiture and because I do lean towards portraiture, I actually do interact with my subjects and there has to be permission there. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think for a lot of street photographers, that element of permission isn't there because they're accessing public space. So uh, in some, in some ways I think there's a lot of street photographers who, who don't want to be observed taking the picture because they want it to be candid. I, on the other hand, um, and a lot of my work, do you want the person to be aware? And in that awareness, that person also becomes um, a co-artist in creating that image. And I appreciate giving people having that agency. Yeah, I mean, street 
street portraiture is sort of a subgenre in itself, and not a lot of people do it. Well, that's hey, that's good to know, and I could I could see why not, um, because you create you have to be incredibly vulnerable, right? You have to be vulnerable enough to let somebody else take their their guard down, and you also have to be willing to accept no, you know, and that's sometimes really tough, especially if you know like oh this is going to be a phenomenal image, but if the person tells you no, the person tells you no, and there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, and it's scary to go up to strangers and ask if you can make their photo. It um it, it can be in, incredibly scary in some ways, especially depending on um, who you want to take a photograph of. But I know that one thing that helps me um, is I tend to shoot in the same area all the time. Mm-hmm. I shoot in gallery place. And because I am always in the same area, people know me now. And so, especially when I was working as a um, folklorist, you know, we always talk about having gatekeepers, right? And you need a gatekeeper when you're trying to engage a community for the first time, because what the gatekeeper does is they, they vouch for you and they tell you what you can do and not do. So because I'm always in gallery place, I have a couple of people who serve as my gatekeepers and they'll explain to me why somebody got mad or if I'm trying to get a picture and somebody says no, they'll say, I don't know, man, you should do it. She has really good work. I know her. I see her here all the time. Uh And that's that's incredibly beneficial to have that type of um, consistency of location, especially for portraits. One thing that's kind of crazy about Chinatown is that, you know, in a couple of years, it's going to be Chinatown in name only. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's kind of that's kind of sad. So I hope the way that I document um, black life in the city, there's somebody um, capturing Asian life. I know Eric Lee just did um, a piece about uh, Asian boyhood, I believe. But I'm wondering who is uh, sort of photographing um, Chinatown with its original residents because they just closed down one of the larger uh, Asian retirement homes or Chinese retirement homes. So it's very lucrative um, real estate. Yeah, I tell you what, D.C. just changes so fast. A lot of people are being pushed out. It's so gentrified in, in so many places. It is, um, it is changing rapidly. And I think especially, and it's different during the pandemic because you really can't go out and shoot and really there aren't people to shoot. But I think part of my compulsion, once again, coming from a a folklore um, anthropology background um, is this compulsion towards preservation this need to preserve, because like you said, the city is changing and it's changing rapidly and the demographics are always shifting. And eventually the only record of the people who were there will be the photographs and the stories because the people will be long gone and pushed to the periphery just yeah. by uh, the needs of commerce. 
Yeah, as Meryl Meisler says, we're all historians. Yes, we are. Uh, especially with Meryl Meisler's pictures of New York in the in, in the seventies and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I love her work. Oh, me too. And and look what she's doing with it now. I mean, and if yeah. she hadn't hadn't taken all those photos, it would would be lost basically. It oh, it would be because um, I, I was thinking just about uh, Times Square mm-hmm. and that that had changed. You know? Oh God, yeah. That's practically Disneyland now in the 70s. You wouldn't take your family down there. <laughs> no. Not in a million years. <laughs> like, you know, stepping over junkies and stuff. <laughs> like, why is that yeah. talking to daddy, mom? What does she want? I don't know. So anyway, let's go back to, to portraiture again. Because, uh, yeah, we don't talk to lots of street portrait artists. I think mainly because... It is a little scary. It's, it's hard. And um, I can tell just by looking at your photos. When you get close, you know, you, ob- mm-hmm. you obviously connect with the people. And I mean, do you have some kind of secret sauce you use to connect with perfect strangers like that? Um, well, I think there's – here's a two-parter. One, I grew up a military brat, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> So if you're moving every two years, like for instance, I went to three high schools in four years. Yeah. You learn how to connect with people very quickly because there's just not a lot of time. And, um, you know, shyness will get you nowhere when you're constantly moving. So I think I bring that part of my background with me. And the other part is once again, having worked in folklore and stuff, I'm used to um, striking up conversations with strangers and pretty much all of my portraits do start with a conversation. Um, Maybe it's a compliment, you know, maybe it's some offhanded remark if we're both observing the same thing, but I I always start with conversation um, first. And I think when you do that, not only does it allow the other person to let their guard down, but it also presents to them, you know, this shared humanity. And once again, and I hate to bring it up over and over again, but the mutual vulnerability is really important, I think, in portraiture. And when you're willing to be vulnerable with somebody else, they're willing to be vulnerable with you in so much that they say, you can take my image and carry this with you indefinitely. It's actually, I think, one of the most incredible gifts that someone can give somebody else, right? That in this moment we're together and I'm going to let you take this honest picture and I trust you enough that um, you're not going to do anything untoward with it. And moreover, I trust you enough that you will shoot me in um, the most dignified and respectful light possible. Yeah. Yeah. How do you get people to, to not smile? Um, <laughs> so sometimes I have to tell people not to smile and sometimes people do it naturally. Um, I think I mentioned this earlier, but it's sort of, it, it is a co-creative process, you know? Oh yeah. So sometimes people are just like, nah, I want to take the picture like this and I'll, I'll allow them to do that. 
But most times I tell people not to smile and other times, depending on the subject, they really don't want to smile, you know, because they're being sort of cool about it. Like, uh, yeah, sure. And get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, and not that I don't have pictures of people smiling. I have those too, but a smile doesn't work for everybody depending on the mood, the mood that they're exuding and that you're trying to capture. Yeah, because, I don't know, they all just look so natural. Of course, imagine the the grip and grin ones you're not going to put on your website anyway. No, no, I wouldn't put them, I wouldn't put them on there anyways. Um, but, I mean, it is, it is very natural. Um, it's not terribly forced, you know? Yeah. The people presenting their natural selves just based on that mutual vulnerability. I was uh, I was doing some street photography here, and mm-hmm. I ran into a guy. Um, you know, we chat a little bit. He let me take his photo. I got some really nice photos of him, but he made me promise. He said, "Don't put this on social media, and I'll let you take my picture." Now I've got these photos. I'd really like to <laughs> to show publicly, but I yeah. made him a promise, and. Uh, Matter of fact, he's a barber, and I I went to get my hair cut from him. Yeah. And I walked in. I said, hey, remember me? I took your picture. And he goes, yeah, you didn't put those pictures on social media, did you? I said, no, I promised that I won't do it. See. You ever get requests like that? Um, Every once in a while, and with those requests, I'll just um, – I, I absolutely honor those requests uh, because the sure. most precious thing somebody has is the, themselves. And also, it's really important, especially in street photography, to conduct yourself with some integrity and ethics. Oh, yeah. Because everybody's on social media. And um, if, say, say you had put those pictures up, um, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to photograph that guy again. And he did say not on social media. So maybe he would let you exhibit them in a gallery setting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. if back and ask, but at least you kept your integrity intact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you don't do that, you're, I don't know, I think you're not worth anything as a photographer. No, no. I, I mean, that, and the ethics question comes up over and over again. Because yeah. people in street photography, the only thing they own is themselves, you know? And, and when when that's the only thing you own, it becomes even more important to have that sort of agency and who takes your image and where that image goes. I think one thing I kind of missed me um, in gallery place is that I started noticing more and more uh, street photographers showing up And about gallery place is that there's a pretty um, significant housing insecure population uh, just because there's a lot of people and there's a shelter around the corner. And the one thing that just would get me every time, and I, I don't, not to be protective or anything, but I, I never really liked it when people would take pictures of housing insecure people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A, without asking, and B, without compensation. Yeah. Uh, it, it really bothers me. So no, I agree with you. You will very rarely see any photos of the homeless in in our magazine, you know, unless it's 
part of a story. I don't want to call it low-hanging fruit. That's the that's the wrong phrasing. There there should be some ethics about that, and it's different if it's a story, right? Um, there's uh, this artist called Suitcase Joe. Um, I don't know if it's a male or a female, but they they work out of um, L.A. and they've been working um, in L.A. on Skid Row for years and. Mm-hmm. Are phenomenal, but yeah. it works because those are long-term personal interactions, and uh, they appear to do a lot of work advocating for housing insecure, insecure individuals. So it's an instance where the photos and the ethics um, align, and it's one of the rare examples I can think of where um, I, you know, where it's good work all around. When you were talking about some of the work you did in the small towns, uh, reminded me of uh, kind of a festival and a project a guy has been doing for a few years down in uh, Wilson, North Carolina. Uh, it's called Eyes on Main Street. Have you have you heard of that? I haven't. It was founded about six years ago by photographer Jerome D. Perlinghi. One hell of a photographer, documentary photographer, portraits. He's done portraits of all these famous people, Samuel Jackson, Johnny Depp, those are some of the ones that come to mind. But he winds up in this little town in North Carolina, which is, it's um, kind of depressed. You know, like a lot of small towns, their downtowns are closed up because the Walmart basically put them out of business over the years. He moved there, he has a home there, and he started uh, a whole project called Eyes on Main Street. He's photographed a lot of the local people. They bring in people from around the world to spend a month there. They fly them in and they spend a month there photographing the community from their own perspective. And uh, a photographer I know, uh, he's an American, but he lives in Mexico. This is how I learned about it. Came up, spent his month there and did did a whole thing on the churches. There are a lot of small churches. Uh, another woman from Italy. And they, they come from all over the world. And then they have this big festival for 100 days through the summer. I went a couple years ago. I was going to go this year, but of course they didn't have it. It's called Eyes on Main Street. I'm just bringing it up because it it's similar to what your own projects. And I encourage you to take a look at it. Uh, take a look at the website. Matter of fact, I'll I'll put it in the article and I'll send you a link to it. And it's not far from you. No, that doesn't sound far at all. It honestly sounds very, very cool. It really is. I was going to say, going back to that Merrill Meisler, everybody's a historian aspect of photography. And it's important to capture those things. And I like, uh, I like that he brings in an international perspective because at Amer- as Americans or as an insider, sometimes you become so close to things that um, you miss some very pertinent details or beautiful details through over-familiarization. Yeah, you really do. You know, I grew up in a really sad little town in Southern Ohio and never thought much of it. And then I happened to run into a photographer from, from Scotland who we featured in a magazine many years ago, and his wife was from there. Matter of fact, I know her family, and he did some amazing work there because he was fascinated by everything he saw, and and you know I just overlooked it because I didn't even want to think about the place basically. 
And he, he showed me my own town in a new light that was uh, that only somebody from the outside could do, I think. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing about being an outsider. I think that's why I find sometimes in my own practice, um, when I, I find my photographs getting stale, um, one thing that quickly reinvigorates is just going someplace new. If it's not someplace new in the city, um, going, going to another state, going to a, another town. And I, I find that to be incredibly helpful to pull me out of a, a funk, as it were. Because you do get to see things with new eyes. Yeah, and it's, it's so easy to get into a funk, too. It um, is. Or even to do, do something different, a different type of photography. Right. I, I feel like right now a lot of street photographers are learning how to be landscape photographers. and <laughs> <laughs> At least urban <laughs> landscape, right? Right. Architectural photographers. And who knows? It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with street photography when people can come back out into a public space um, to see if people's practice would have changed over this eight months and to see what type of pictures they take in the sense of, you know, how we were talking about looking at things with new eyes. Mm -hmm. Well, our eyes have had quite a rest, right? (laughs) (laughs) So it's going to be real exciting. Yeah. I just uh, heard from street photographer the other day. I haven't talked to him in a while and he said he has not been out doing any street photography since since the pandemic started back in March that that sounds about right I went out in April and May you know because there was mm-hmm. loud and people were um, wearing masks and everything and let's say June July not not so much. I would have to go back and look at my date tags, but it's been a while. And the last time I went out and like it literally took an act of God was um, Trump losing the election and D.C. losing its mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I went out to, uh, you know, photograph that and be a part of that and um, incredible energy. Cut. Yeah. How could you avoid it? Uh, especially that day. No, you couldn't avoid it. And actually it was kind of funny uh, because my partner and I, we weren't even watching the news. Uh, We were in the house and all of a sudden, and we live in Arlington, we just heard honking and screaming. (laughs) And we were like, what's going on? And then like, obviously like everybody else, like in this area, this Northern Virginia bubble, which tends to be more liberal, um, you know, People, people are crying and stuff. Like it, it was a good day, and it, it was really nice to, oddly enough, in in that one moment, it seems like everything we lost was given back to us. Like people were wearing masks and stuff, but it was a beautiful day here, and the streets were just teeming with people. I mean, just just walking down the street and being human again. Not that we're less human now, but that brief reprieve from this uh, nightmare that has been the pandemic and, you know, the relevant isolation for that one moment. It was a a beautiful day and I wasn't going to miss out on it. 
um, just to be a part of it and to photograph it. Yeah, yeah, you're lucky. You're lucky to have been there. I mean, it, that happened in a lot of cities, but I think the one in D.C. was really special. Yeah, I think I, I I I heard reports that they were partying in front of the White House until about four or five a.m. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, my goodness, you guys are really sticking it to the poor guy. I think was it uh, Ireland or someplace where they had like fireworks. I think in Paris, they were ringing church bells. So are you gonna you gonna photograph? around the edges of the inauguration? Um, I will very likely photograph around the edges of the inauguration, uh, especially with big events like that. Um, part of the reason I like the periphery is that history is always painted in broad strokes, right? But the details are just as fascinating. Um, when I did live in T Tuskegee, I did some work with the Park Service because they were getting ready to do the Civil Rights Trail through Montgomery. And we wound up talking to a woman who was the, um, pres the president of SNCC at ASU. And when you think about SNCC and you think about the Selma to Montgomery march and everything, you, you get the big stories and the broad strokes. But what really fascinated me was when she was talking about the women who would make the box lunches for the marchers or how she hmm. never knew it, but her dad would come to the marches and be, you know, several paces back with his revolver just in case things got hairy, or how some of the marchers actually had to carry buckets with them um, if they had to go to the bathroom. And I was like, those details of history get lost. Those are, those are details that exist on the periphery. And so I think I sort of carried that with me. And that's that's why I like shooting on, um, in some instances, on the edges of things, because there's going to be plenty of people to get the big stuff. But who's who's going to be out there getting the smaller, equally important things? Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's like shooting a parade. I mean, you can stand in the crowd and photograph the floats going by or you can turn around and photograph the people around it. And the people who are in it when they're forming up at the beginning or coming out the the back end when they're finished. And, and it's yeah. uh, I think it's much more interesting. It is because we've we've all seen a parade, right? We've all yeah. seen that. But you know, that one child with that one amazed look on their yeah. face, that that's unique to the to that particular experience, you know? Or like you said, the people getting ready. And I guess that's that's always something we look for in street photography, right? What what is unique? What what is um, what is enduring? I think that's what makes for some of my favorite photographs. That that thing that I haven't seen before. Speaking of favorite photographs, I've got a question for you. This is something that's been been on my mind for a while now. Okay. All right, so you you have you have a photograph you took and you really like it, mm -hmm. mainly because of what was going on, the emotions you felt at the time, and how do you know how how do you step back outside yourself and evaluate it, you know, in a, in a very objective way 
to determine if if it's really a good photograph, if it, maybe it actually communicates those feelings you had uh, to other people. I mean, obviously, when you look at it, those they're going to come back to you. But I see people really fall in love with pieces of their own work, myself included, and they have a hard time divorcing themselves from it to know if it's really a good photograph to display or put in your portfolio. How do you do that? So the great thing about being a part of the DC street photography collective is that they will keep you humble. Ah. Right. Because it it is very hard to be um, objective about our own work. Right. Like you could, you could go through all the technical aspects of a photo and everything else. And that's great. But we all know that a photo doesn't always live and die on the technicalities. Right. Oh yeah. There's just also the emotion, you know, um, and the subject. But I find it very helpful um, because we do critique one another's work. That if I do have a picture that's on the edge, that's what I'm going to put up for critique. And I think (laughs) what was really great, the ultimate critique was um, actually when we were uh, selecting photos for our book, Bad Day. Mm Mm-hmm recently sold out that was also a very humbling experience because each of us were putting in 30 40 pictures and so to have people go through with a critical eye i think is always valuable um because you know we don't judge ourselves as harshly as other people (laughs) so that's how i do it but how how do you do it when uh i i would like to learn how to do that for myself I think that's the key is to be a, a very good critic of yourself. Um, I have a excellent book by a, a Baron X Perello who does oh, the candid frame mm-hmm. called making photographs. And he's got a whole section on that of how he does it. Um, he just, he wrote a sort of a shorter version of it. Um, in an, another guy's on another guy's blog. Um, Olaf Staba, uh, he, he writes a really good photography blog. I, uh, I follow his RSS feed and I saw the article. I said, wait a minute, that's in his book. And he, he goes into it in great detail in the book. And, and I think it's one of the most valuable pieces of that book. I'd recommend it to anyone. Well, thank you for recommending it to me. <laughs> yeah, check it out. Um, but, you know, there's nothing like having other people look at your work. I've been... I've been showing mine to um, Ashley Refo. She's the uh, editor of our magazine. She has great taste. It's different from mine. So I've started to ask her to look at some of my work and I've gotten very good input from her. That's always very nice to have somebody outside of yourself, which I think that's come up several times in this conversation. The the perspective of an outsider and how that can um, strengthen an image. And even um, strengthen your image making. So, very cool. How much do you edit a photograph before it's not even, before it turns into a lie, basically? <laughs> like, how, how, far do, how far can you really go with that? True, true. I mean, do you ever clone things out like a, you've got a great photo of somebody on the street, but there's a pole coming out of their head 
Do you clone that out? Mm, I I wouldn't. And I think part of that, though, is because if you can just clone things out, I'd... It's best to capture the image you want. At least this is how it was explained to me uh, by someone, um, Robert Trejo Jr., who is also a really great street photographer. And his whole thing is, I'm going to capture it in frame. So what's in the frame is in the frame. And that makes you pay more attention to what's around you. Um, One of our collective members, Kanayo Adibe, who was one of the first people to reach out to me before I was even in the collective, he just uh, he he direct messaged me on Instagram, and you know, sort of uh, started explaining to me the value of very much paying attention to your backgrounds and being meticulous. Mm-hmm. About that. And uh, from those two people, I learned a lot. So I I wouldn't clone out the poll as much as say, well, this could have been a great photograph, but it's just good. Do better next time. You know, in terms of uh, seeing if you can get that, if you can get the pole out of there just by changing your positioning. Yeah, background, background, background. It matters. Some, it, it matters a lot. Sometimes on the street, you just can't. Sometimes it is, uh, it, you know, depending, it can be really, it can be really tough, but I don't know. If the poll was there, the poll was there. What about you? Did you clone it out? Good question. Maybe. I'll never say never. Maybe if, if it's really good. It, I mean, I wouldn't do anything like they're standing in front of a storefront that's really ugly and change the background entirely, you know, to, <laughs> you know, to the clouds or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be over the top. Yeah, I guess never say never, you know, if you can make something a little better. But um, there's a lot to be said with getting everything right in camera from the beginning. Um, But let me ask you something. Um, Your website. I really like your website. Oh, thank you. You did it on Squarespace. You know what I I like about it? It's really simple. You only (laughs) have a handful of photos on there. Yes. What's your reason for doing that? Um, I think part of it is the way my website is broken down. It's broken down into poems and quotes by really famous mm-hmm. black people, authors, mm-hmm. and uh, poets. And each of them sort of have a theme, whether it's children or how we interact with this American experience. And because the poems were so simple and I knew that's how I wanted to do it, I knew I also didn't have to overwhelm it with a bunch of images, but the images that I thought were best and most representational of the words on the screen. And that's, and that's why it's um, so straightforward. And I think also it's kind of a reflection of um, myself too, because I I tend to be generally just very um, straightforward. Uh, I think part of that in photography I think part of that too is that I'm a self-taught photographer, right? So I'm not going to have a super long bio and I haven't been in a million exhibitions or a million publications. Um, so 
a simple website for a simple practice. As I said at the beginning, I first saw you on a Zoom call with the D.C. Street Photography Collective up there in Washington, D.C., and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you get into a collective. Um, is there some type of a screening process or an initiation? And also more about your experience in being in the collective and what that does for you. What do you get out of it? And what do they get from you? Well, two things. So here, here's a note, and I hope I'm not messing you up here. I got the Street Photography Collective website wrong. It's thedcspc.com. Hmm. And the way I came to the collective was actually, um, I knew Kanayo because I had run into him at the mm-hmm. portrait gallery. This is before I ever knew him, and I thought he was interesting, so I took a picture of him. And then... Um, Another individual, Mike Jett, who's also a phenomenal uh, street photographer in the area, um, I got to know him. And I, I honestly, I don't remember how, but it feels like we've been friends forever. And um, he invited me to a critique. And at that critique were several of the members who would ultimately become the D.C. Street Photography Collective. And I think I went to two or three critiques and they asked me if I would formally uh, like to to join the collective. And there's really no um, initiation or anything like that. <laughs> no, I was kidding about that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It, there, there were no dark rooms or candles or anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's very above board. Um, but really, we, we look for a diverse range of photographers um, that are doing very solid street photography work in the DC area. And actually we're in the process of trying to figure out who our newest member is going to be. So that's, that's really exciting. Sure. Cause everybody's got a, they have to fit well together. I'm sure. You do have to fit well together. And I think in having a collective, you kind of want to avoid redundancies Right. Because if everybody in the collective makes the same sort of images, mm-hmm. how fun is that? Especially um, especially in the, in the book, you, you see how each one of us is different from the other. And when you bring those parts together, it, it made for a much stronger product, which I said that people listening to the podcast won't have an opportunity to purchase the book, uh, at least the first edition. Um, but hopefully... Uh, there will be a second edition soon. Yeah, that sold out really fast. It sold out incredibly fast. We were we were shocked and humbled. Yeah, we did a post about it, like I think the day it was announced. And next thing I know, it sold out. Yeah, it went really fast. And also, thank you for doing that post for us. Oh, no, we're happy to do it. Hey, we're neighbors. Yeah, we are. And uh, yeah, you've got yeah, you have a, a really uh, very interesting collective. I, I I I like the whole concept of a collective. Uh, we've we've done articles on several of them around the world, and it just seems like a good way to go. Even even if you're part of a collective that's not even the same city, just to get be able to get feedback and and uh, 
you know, share thoughts with, you know, fellow photographers? Oh, it, it's huge. And honestly, I think what was great about the collect um, right now was the pandemic. Um, we had each other. And even though some of us weren't actively making images, we were constantly reviewing images and we speak every Tuesday. Um, that, that was, that was really big, um, because we're all a part of photography communities, you know, but the communities can tend to be really scattered. But when you have a collective, you always have a home base, right? Mm-hmm. And very tangible form of community that's always there. There's nothing abstract about it. Yeah. in DC, that's, uh, I mean, it's a real honor to be asked to be in a group like that. I mean, considering how many, great photographers there are in that city. I mean, being the nation's capital, some of the best photojournalists in the world are there. Oh, it's a phenomenal um, honor. And I mean, if you go through our roster, you know, Chris Suspect, Kanayo Adibe, um, Ryan Madison, Sophia Sebastian, Tom Mullins, all of them are just absolutely um phenomenal photographers and each one brings uh, unique strengths to the collective and we get to learn from each other um, and we get to grow from our interactions. And I, I really do appreciate it. And like you said, it is truly an honor. So would you be safe in saying that you recommend don't try this alone? Um, <laughs> I don't know if I would recommend don't try this alone, but I will say that there is a lot of benefit to um, working with other people. There's this African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Right. Um, even, even in doing this book, I don't know if any of us outside of Chris Suspect um, would have necessarily taken on a book individually, but to have this experience together. Um, and to work together made it a, a little less daunting and um, actually really, really enjoyable. And we learned a lot about one another. And so are you going to do a second printing? That is a discussion that we <laughs> are, it's an ongoing discussion. I'm sure it's going to come up in the meeting tonight, but seeing how quickly the first edition sold out it's 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 a real possibility but obviously uh we would keep you updated for sure yeah please do and we'll we'll be happy to post it well thank you yeah i i like to think that the fact that we promoted the book is what caused it to sell out i'm sure that's not the case but i'm I'm gonna tell myself that's the truth (laughs) i i think I think it helped tremendously. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Yeah. And, you know, as a collect, here's the other benefit about a collective. Um, one person doing social media posts doesn't have the same impact as six people doing social media yeah. project. You know, so we were able to reach out to a, a larger audience. That's true. And uh, some of you guys have big audiences. So that really helps. Oh yeah. Um, I know Chris suspect has a huge audience. I think Sophia too, Tanayo as well. Yeah. He's got the process for selling out a book down pat. 
<laughs> he does. He does. Chris, Chris um, actually did a lot of heavy lifting on this book, um, as did um, Sophia, who was our photo editor, and Kanayo, who uh, did the cover. Um, well, the cover photo is his. Chris Suspect designed the cover, and Tom Mullins did the foreword. So just it's wonderful to work with such talented and able people. Yeah, I've looked at their work, and they are all really amazing photographers. You're, you're quite lucky. Well, before we go, I wonder, Ashley, if you could tell us where people can find you online. Ah, well, if you want to see my website, you can go to ashleytillery.com. And on Instagram, my handle is descry88. Um, or you can just find me using Ashley Tillery. I'm also on the um, DC Street Photography Collective website. And I believe that is dcspc.com. So, well, Ashley, I got to thank you for your time. I really appreciate it and dealing with our, our technical issues. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate your patience. And you, you got you to gotta come down this way sometime. Oh, absolutely. We'll, we'll show you some, some the fun of Central Virginia. I would love that. And um, thank you so much for having me on, Bob. I really appreciate it. It was an honor to be here. And I hope we get to meet in the future. Mm-hmm.